Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. Okay, please join me in the words for lighting our chalice. They will be projected. We light this chalice. And now I ask you to take a deep breath. This moment that we share, this moment we find ourselves in together, as we breathe, this moment is fleeting, as are all the moments of our lives. So be here now with all you bring side by side with your companions in the quiet and wonder of this moment that will never come again. Take a deep breath. So when I first met many of you during Candidating Week nearly two years ago, We had a lot of conversations that were on their face about language. Would I use the word God? What would I mean if I did? What would words like worship or prayer or spirit mean? Would I qualify them? They were challenging questions and difficult conversations, and I'm sure some of you remember them. We all did our best to be patient and to listen carefully, and it occurred to me then, and it has again over the last year and a half plus, that the conversations were about so much more than language. They were about the very heart of what makes Unitarian Universalism different from any other faith tradition. When you sit in the chairs of any other religious house, there's an expectation of shared theological understanding. Of course, whether there actually is shared understanding is another matter. But when you sit side by side in a Methodist or Catholic or Muslim house of worship, there's an expectation that in some significant ways you share the same view of God, of heaven and hell, of our human place in the cosmos. Not so in a Unitarian Universalist congregation. There is no shared vision of God, no shared vision of heaven or hell, no theology that is insisted upon. No accepted notion of humanity's place or value in the cosmos. That's not what links us. In those same chairs in a Methodist or Muslim house of worship, you might have people side by side who share a theology, but interpret it very differently, and as a result, result, have wildly different ethical stances that lead to differing commitments to justice. In a UU congregation, you're likely to find shared commitment to justice, a shared commitment to how we want to be, rather than a shared theology. So that's one of the central ways that I have taken to explaining what is different about us, what is different about what we do here. Sitting next to you could be someone who absolutely believes in God, 
or someone for whom that word is useless. You might be sitting next to somebody who believes that when the end comes for us, that's it. Or someone who believes that some peace and joy awaits us all. This is both challenging and glorious, and it is fundamental to Unitarian Universalism. There's room here for all of us, for all our differing beliefs and understandings, just as there is room for all our differing identities, needs, hopes, and dreams. So welcome this morning here to this house of openness, this house of diversity. Your presence here in your unique glory matters. Grateful for each other's presence, welcoming of each other's diversity, committed to our shared humanity, we gather together this morning. Every Sunday when we gather together, we take time for reflection and quiet. We are aware that in the diversity of this congregation, we all use this time differently for meditation or prayer, for intentional breathing, for whatever works for you. I invite you to come into that time now by taking a slow, deep breath. Take another breath. Try to calm your body and your mind. Let yourself be present to what is in you. To the call of your own heart. Breathe slowly and deeply. This morning, as we sit together, we do so aware of all the ways we are different. Our genders, our sexualities, our ages, our abilities, our theologies and histories and beliefs, our gifts and talents and struggles. No two of us are alike. This morning, we are mindful of all the places around the world, including in our own families, our communities, our faith tradition, our world. We are mindful of all the places that difference is reviled, that difference is approached with violence or is willfully misrepresented or misunderstood. We long for a time when differences are respected, rejoiced in, embraced and honored. That will be a day for celebration. This morning, we remember too that for all our differences, we have a shared humanity. We all of us fear, grieve, hope, and love. Different, yet the same. Separate, yet together. We sit in the silence, answering the call of our own hearts. Take a slow, deep breath. May we May the world 
find a way toward a wholeness that holds all our varied beauty. So may it be. That scripture story of David and Goliath continues from where we ended. David approaches, he fells the giant with one of his five smooth stones. Without armor, with just a sling, he hits the giant right between the eyes and down Goliath goes. David takes his life by taking his head and is rewarded handsomely. David, once a simple shepherd, goes on to become king and to do a great many good and some very bad things. The story is understood as a prototypical underdog tale. The lowly shepherd with little prospects, untrained, unskilled in the military arts, manages to defeat the enormous champion from the other side. Goliath had been taunting Saul's army for weeks, a skilled and trained fighter unafraid of anything. And then here comes David, who refuses the armor because it doesn't feel right on his body, and who uses not a sword, but a sling, hardly the tool of a warrior, and five smooth river stones. And David wins, in part we're given to understand because of his courageous heart. Now it'll come as no surprise that I am not a biblical literalist. I doubt this story actually happened, but this story, like so many of the wisdom stories that have lasted for millennia, has a deeper truth worth retelling. Here, we are reminded that there is such a thing as an unexpected hero. We're reminded that sometimes things aren't what they seem. Sometimes we think a story will go one way and it gets turned on its head. We're reminded that often we have all the tools we already need to change the world. We don't need to take on anyone else's weapons or armor. We don't need to conform ourselves to anyone else's notion of how we should be. And together, we need not conform our faith to the world's conception of what a religion should be. And the reality is we don't conform. Our diverse theology makes us unique, and I think we would do well to lean into that gift rather than to try to take on the armor or weapons of those religions that came before. Among our 20th century Unitarian luminaries is a man named James Luther Adams, He was a parish minister, a professor, a prolific author, and he's responsible for a short essay titled The Five Smooth Stones of Liberalism. JLA, as he is affectionately called, outlines the five smooth stones of liberalism in his compiled work on being human religiously. The stones are, of course, a reference to that David and Goliath story, They are the ammunition that we religious liberals have in a world gone mad. The skills and knowledge we have to combat conformist notions of religious understanding. They are our defense against the Goliaths that would scare us, tell us we don't belong, make light of our value in the religious landscape. The first stone, he writes, is that, quote, meaning has not been fully captured. What he means here is what we say often, which is nothing is finished, nothing is over. Put in religious terms, revelation is continuous. The result of this, though, is that everything can be critiqued. New information can always be incorporated. Things are not complete. We are unfolding. Existence is unfolding. We are growing and changing and journeying onward. The second stone is that, quote, 
relations between persons ought ideally to rest on mutual free consent and not on coercion. Loyalty and conviction, he writes, should be freely given, not coerced, not forced, meaning we are free to determine whether or not we want to walk alongside each other. We are free to determine what meaning to make out of that unfolding of our lives and this world. The third is that we are obligated morally to work toward the establishment of a just and loving community, as he puts it. This community we seek is human. It exists in time and space, not in some other plane. And it is, as he describes it, an achievement of freedom with respect to material resources as well as with respect to spiritual resources. So, it isn't enough to live by the spirit one has to do, and it isn't enough to have faith in a world to come, one has to make this world loving and just. The fourth stone is the notion that organization makes possible the establishment of loving community. Intentional, organized, social behavior makes it possible. He writes, no one can properly put faith in merely individual virtue, even though that is a prerequisite for societal virtues. The faith of the liberal must express itself in societal forms. Without these, freedom and justice in community are impossible. Faith is only worthwhile, good, adequate, he writes, if, one, if it leads one to give time and energy to changing politics, society, education. We have to organize power because it is through the human exercise of organized power that change will actually come about. Adam's fifth stone, put very simply, is optimism. The idea that available to all of us are resources, and he describes them as both human and divine, resources that justify seeing the universe unfolding in a positive way if we each do our part. It's not a blind optimism, he says, but perhaps a willful one, he writes that, quote, with all the realism and tough-mindedness that can be mustered, the genuine liberal finally can hear and join the hallelujah chorus. Intellectual integrity, social relevance, amplitude of perspective, and the spirit of true liberation offer no less. My colleague, the Reverend Tony Lorenzen, sums up the five smooth stones of James Luther Adams with just one word each. Evolution, freedom, justice, agency, and hope. Okay? Evolution, freedom, justice, agency, and hope. Those are the five smooth stones of liberal religion gifted to us by our forebears. These gifts, these acquired skills, these stones in our slings say nothing about theology, about God or heaven or hell. Our strength doesn't come from a shared theology. It comes from a shared understanding that the world is evolving, that all of us are entitled to freedom and justice and agency, and it comes from a hope that is indispensable for human living. These inheritances take what traditionally coheres a religious tradition and turn it on its head. This unexpected twist, this alteration in what has been, helps to understand or make clear why our theologically diverse community exists. 
and why we try and try again to get right being a religious community that embraces diversity of all kinds. Among us here are atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, Christians, Jews, and many, many more. All of us committed to evolution, freedom, justice, agency, and hope. Decades ago, we Unitarian Universalists threw off the armor and weapons of traditional religious community that didn't feel right to us, and instead we took up our five smooth stones. Last Sunday, when I was riding home from church, my mother commented on the windows at the back of this space. You can turn around and look if you want. Um, The windows were designed by Tony Valones, who also designed this wood installation at the front of our space. He was a member here and a well-known artist. I don't think my mother had ever noticed that they were dinosaurs, um, so she was commenting on that. I assume you have all noticed at this point that they are dinosaurs. One is a little more abstract over here on the right, but this one is very clearly a bunch of dinosaurs moving around. We had dinosaur music once. We did. Over in the hallway in Reeb, across from the kitchen, are three sketches for windows, and they are here. Thank you to Carol for making this for me. Um, One of the sketches, as you can see, was used to create that window back there. The other two were not used, and I not so secretly wish that we could get these made, to be honest, because I love them. I think they're amazing. I love the windows, and it was, in fact, one of the things that stood out to me about this congregation's search packet over two years ago. Dinosaur windows was highly appealing to a mother of three little boys. And stained glass appealed to this minister's medievalist heart. Our stained glass dinosaur windows are a wonderful turning of tradition on its head. Here is this old religious art form in which we usually find angels and scripture stories and beautiful complex geometric designs, and we've put in dinosaurs. We've turned this old form on its head and made a statement about evolution, about the long reality of history, even perhaps about the purpose of religion and what it can be and mean for people. One doesn't expect dinosaurs when one looks at stained glass windows. Just as one doesn't expect a small shepherd to win against a giant, just as one doesn't expect a religious community to be comprised of diverse theologies. The windows are defiant. They are significant. They declare a part of who we are and a part of what matters to us most. We believe in our free will in our reasoned minds. We believe in the world's evolution in science, history, possibility, and in our own smallness in the vastness of time. I read that rather lengthy passage from Forest Church's Cathedral of the World. He paints a picture of a beautiful cathedral filled with windows. I always imagine them to be stained glass. It's a lovely articulation of the theological diversity to which we are committed. We're all in there in this cathedral he envisions. It's vast. We each know only our piece of the giant big space. Our piece is true and real and alive and meaningful and just part of this amazing enormity. But given the limitations of our humanity, the brevity of our lives, the shallowness of our own vision... We often can't see beyond our corner. Some know there's a larger whole, but somehow believe that some parts matter and others don't, or that in some parts the light shines better or brighter or more really. 
Church writes that there is one light, many windows. And that while some folks want to destroy others' windows, it's because they have misunderstood the nature of the windows and of the light. They are not one and the same. The light finds a way, regardless of which window you stand in front of. As Unitarian Universalists, we know that there is a larger space beyond what we see in our own lives, and that while our peace is real and true, so too are other pieces. We witness the light. The light is also in us. We are the cathedral. We are in the cathedral, just as church writes. And I want to be clear that we're not dismissive of form. The windows are relevant. It matters that here we have dinosaurs and images of science and evolution. I don't want to reduce human experience to a singular form. That's not what we do. But what we do is see that the light shines through in many ways, and it isn't up to us to decide which window any individual uses to access the light. We accept diversity of experience. We accept diversity of theology, diversity of personhood. And we are comfortable with casting off the shackles of expectation and forging our path as individuals and as a community, forging the path that makes sense to us with the gifts, commitments, and tools at our disposal. For many years before becoming a minister, I studied art history. There are lots of images of David and Goliath. You can search this on the internet. Paintings, sculptures, frescoes, prints, it's everywhere. And there are two that particularly stand out in the history of art, two of the most famous. Sculptures by the Renaissance greats Donatello and Michelangelo. Both are realistic sculptures, but they're very different. Donatello depicts a young man, scarcely more than a youth, while Michelangelo gave the world this strapping, muscular David. But it doesn't matter in some ways that they are so different, because it isn't actually his height or lack thereof that led to David's success. It wasn't his muscles. He won because he used the tools he knew, the ones he'd known his whole life. He knew, trusted, hoped, that the five smooth stones would help him win the day. His metaphorical smooth stones were, we can speculate, the skills he'd learned over years protecting his sheep, his ambition to make a better life for himself, the courage he came by naturally, perhaps, and many more. We have our own five smooth stones. We may be a small religious tradition, but we have our tools. Organizing power, exercising our freedoms, committing to consent, knowing that the future is not sealed, and hoping, always hoping. These are the five smooth stones we have been given by our past. The five smooth stones we can use to slay the giants of conformity, selfishness, disconnection, isolation, shallowness. These are the smooth stones we can use to create a better world where diversity is honored. They are our sacred stones, our slinging stones. These stones are not to be used to destroy the windows of the cathedral of the world. Rather, they are to be used in defense of diversity, in defense of theological variety, in defense of the wide breadth of humankind. I imagine that many of you have had to explain Unitarian Universalism. Yes? No? To a friend, a family member, a colleague... I want to take a minute, I want to ask you to think about the last time you tried to explain Unitarian Universalism to somebody and what you said. Just think back on that if you can remember. 
Or think about the question, how you would answer that question if it were posed to you now. What is Unitarian Universalism? It's like the elevator speech that we talk about, right? You have two minutes to explain this thing to which you devote your time and your money and your skills and your Sunday mornings. Think for a minute about what you would say. Does your answer capture theological diversity? Does it capture those five smooth stones? Does it capture our commitment to science and reason as brought to life by our windows? Does it capture the feeling you get when you are in this space among people who see you and know you and care for you? Does it lift up the subversive way our faith turns traditional religion on its head and creates a new way of community and meaning? Does it capture our shared humanity, the oneness of us, and the love that holds us all? My ask of you this week is that you think about how you describe Unitarian Universalism. And if you're not describing it to anybody, think about that too, because you should be out there sharing what you do. (laughs) Think about it, and if you're inclined, write it out and email it to me, because I would love to see it. I suspect the articulations will be as diverse as this congregation, and yet will share some common thread. So that's my ask, okay? May we all remember that our differences are glorious and beautiful and that we share a common set of smooth stones. We are not without skills and gifts and inherited knowledge. And we are definitely not alone. Let us celebrate and embrace our diversity and bask in our shared humanity and move forward together on our journeys. So may it be.